Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. Today, we're happy to welcome Thomas, general partner at Acadian Ventures, an early-stage venture capital firm that helps founders around the world build enduring companies. His recent European investments include TechWall, 50 and Figures. Thomas has an operator background in HR tech and the future of work, having been a research VP at Gartner and led product at SuccessFactors. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving us a review and following the European VC on LinkedIn. Thomas, welcome to the European VC podcast. I hope you are having a blast of a day. How are you? I'm doing great, David. Andreas, super to, super to see you. First off, I'm a big fan of your show. I've listened to, gosh, dozens of episodes now. When I go running, you guys are my friends on my run. So I feel like I know you. <laughs> always, always nice to have more friends across the globe. I'm actually very happy that you say that because I, I can now tell my wife that I run daily. In the ears of uh, our listeners, <laughs> she will not believe me. <laughs> you run, you run really slowly, though, Andreas. That's the problem. Uh, nah, well, that's it. Well, you know, when you need to be many places at the same time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thomas, aside from the fact that you uh, like running and to stay as healthy as you can, what should our audience know about you? Give us a quick rundown. Oh gosh, where do I start? So. My background is I was born in England. I grew up in South Africa, uh, not Australia, and uh, I now live in Germany. I ended up in Germany by mistake. I worked for uh, a software company in South Africa that had a subsidiary company called SAP, and I somehow ended up in Germany. And you know, been in, in Germany, the US, and, and the UK, you know, sort of ever since. Yep. So I'm kind of like a global citizen. I support South Africa cricket and rugby. I support the Germans at soccer and the English at snooker. So that's that's kind of my background, operator background. Spent you know many years in in software uh, product management, and for a while I was an analyst at Gartner. I've come to VC relatively late in my career, but I'm having a blast. Thomas, thank you for that. Super cool, in a citizen of the world for sure. What if we uh, take it to Acadian specific? What the hell is Acadian? What's that about? And give us a bit of the backstory on the origin, because you are. If I recall correctly, from inception, globally focused fund. And that is kind of cool and kind of different. Yeah, completely. So the credit for the fund actually goes to my partner, Jason Corsello. He's at the fund up in 2019. Uh, so Acadian is a mountain in Vermont, right? And Jason has a family there, and that's where he's, he hangs out. He lives in Connecticut, but he's often in Vermont, and there's a mountain there called Acadia. A lot of VCs seem to name themselves after geographical features. You know, you have VCs like with lakes and you have VCs with mountains. I've not yet found a VC with like a crevice or a dungeon or some cave, but most VCs involve some kind of geographical construction. So, hey, we've got, we've got a cave, the Acadian mountain. But where the firm started is Jason was actually at Cornerstone On Demand, which is one of the biggest learning management vendors at the time was listed on the NASDAQ. Uh, and he was heading up their corporate VC fund and strategy and M&A at, at Cornerstone. And you know, he kept getting the question, you know, who, where are the uh, specialist VCs in HR tech future of work? And he didn't know of any. You know, he said, well, that's kind of weird. This is 
you know, there's specialist firms of fintech, there's specialist terms for ad tech, there's specialist terms for all sorts of tech, but how come, you know, not for HR tech? And so he decided to branch out on his own and set up Acadian. And at the same time I was leaving SAP, I, I just sold all my SAP shares and I took some of my capital and I was one of the first LPs in Acadian in Fund One. Fund One started in 2019 and I was an LP in Fund One. And I found myself being like an active LP. So I would be, you know, sending Jason, you know, fellow high net worths to join the fund. And I was, you know, helping him a little bit on on sourcing and some due diligence. And I sort of found myself almost becoming a, an active, you know, portfolio contributor without actually being one. And then Fund One's performed really well. And so towards the end of, um, well, the start of 2021, you know, Jason and I were talking about this and then... Um, at the beginning of last year, I joined Jason as a GP, and we then set out to raise Fund Two. But we've always felt that you know there is so much innovation going on outside Silicon Valley that there's opportunities you know, beyond the US to invest in this specialist field. Uh, and so we began from the beginning really to have this global to this global outlook to um, seek out. You know, if you think about it logically, there are people that work everywhere in the world. So there's those people who require technologies to support them. So we've done investments in Mexico. We've done investments in the US, Canada, UK. We did one last week in the Netherlands. Uh, we've done in Belgium and uh, we've done Malaysia. And we did one recently in Kenya because we feel that you know, with the workforce being globally distributed, there are opportunities everywhere in the world. And what we do is, I'm rambling on here a bit, but we tend to ally ourselves with local experts. So if we're investing, when we invested in Kenya, for instance, we invested together with North Africa, who are super experienced seed stage investors in Africa. And then we've always partnered with other VCs because they see us for our expertise. And therefore, we're not greedy. We don't want to own the whole cap table. We partner with more generalist, uh, probably more famous large-scale VCs to provide that specialization. I um, would maybe just ask you, Thomas, on that point, your journey into ventures. It's not the most common one <laughs> we've no, heard here on the no. podcast. Very, I think it's the first time we have a story like that LP turned GP. My question would be, at that time, so when you first invest in Acadian as an LP, could you share with us a bit your thought process around that? And did you want to invest into Acadian? Did you, did you pick it because of its, of its sectorial focus? Were you actually thinking about becoming an LP in, in a set of funds? Were you thinking about a portfolio? I'd love to kind of go back in time and, and, and hear, hear your thinking back then. So when I left SAP, I, I went back to university and I finished my PhD. I'd been doing it part-time for like, for probably longer than many people have been alive. Yeah, I saw somebody the other day who got that, you know, be working on their PhD for 50 years. And mine felt like that. I think I was doing it for more than 10 years. So I took some time off when I left SAP to go back to university. And then I'd set up my own strategy advisory, uh, helping, you know, many startups and scale-ups uh, in the HR tech space, you know, companies like Hi Bob, 360 Learning, and so on were my advisory clients. And um, I found myself getting more and more involved in the investment side of things. I did quite a bit of work for PE firms, uh, Goldman Sachs, Blackstone, you know, on the financial world. So I was, I was sort of learning more and more about this world, did a bit more studying on finance and stuff. But the thing that attracted to me to Jason is I really, really knew the space. This is a space that I've spent, you know, when I was at SAP, I was the head of product for Success Factors. So, you know, I'd seen the massive ship to software as a service, you know, through the 2000s. Uh, when I was gone, I did all the magic quadrants and stuff in that space. So, you know, I've been super excited about the space because I knew the space. And Jason, I'd known him sort of several years. And I felt like 
yeah, this is a guy who's going to really nail this. And so I saw the opportunity for the fund, but primarily I saw the opportunity in the person that was the founding GP of this fund. I saw myself being helpful for, to, to the fund, but at the time that I invested in 2019, I didn't really see myself as a venture capitalist as such. And I sort of really, over the time of working with Jason, it sort of morphed, slipped into it, if you like, without sort of really meaning to. And then you know, Jason said, well, Thomas, you're behaving like a VC. Why don't you just stop messing around and actually join me in the fund? And so at the beginning of 2022, that's what I did. I'd love to get back to the global part because you say very well that, that there's opportunity everywhere. And I think we all agree on that. But we also tend to say that it's very difficult to build up great deal flow if you're not geographically focused and then you can always say ah but if you have a strong enough vertical focus then you can build it but i'm curious to hear you know your own reflections on that is it really that clear to you that you do get the best deal flow globally because you are so focused on future of work or do you see that we might actually lean more towards having a geo focus as well in the future i'm curious to hear this is going to sound really arrogant but there's a famous quote from Andy Warhol, you know, everyone's famous for 15 minutes, where you can replay that to say everyone's famous for 15 people. You know, in the field of HR tech, you know, we've been around it, you know, so long, we, we're really well known. So people in HR tech just connect us. It, you know, it's unbelievable that for having worked in this field for, for nearly 30 years, 25 years or whatever, both of us have been good networkers. So we just find that connectivity just sort of happens. It's almost payback for years of networking. You sort of harvesting it. I don't really like that term, but it's it's coming back to us now. And what we're learning is that other VCs are learning about us. So when they see an HR opportunity, they often bring it to us because they know we're not going to be greedy. We don't want all the cap table, right? We, we don't want to lead. We want to support. And so they bring us in. So for instance, there was one a couple of weeks ago, which we haven't announced it yet, but we did it together with Headline. And uh, Jonathan, the headline, phoned me up and said, hey, Thomas, I've got this opportunity. I'm really excited about the, the team and the metrics and so on, but I can't understand why SAP hadn't built this product. And I said, well, I could tell you, because if it had been at SAP, I would have been the one who would be responsible to building it. I would never have built this. It would have been technically and politically impossible for me to build this product, even though I could see the business opportunity. And then we sort of clicked and he said, great, do you want to talk to them? I said, yes, I'd love to talk to them. And then he said, great, you know, they like you. They really like your expertise. You know, would you be interested in joining us on the cap table? So we're seeing that happening sort of pretty much around the place. It's happened to us several times in France. It happened with Figures. You may know Figures, the uh, Virgil at Figures runs probably one of the most fascinating startups in terms of her marketing and getting the zeitgeist of, the, of society at the moment. But he's hit on this idea of compensation transparency, former compensation manager. And we heard about that because I'd done some advisory work a couple of years ago with one of his angels. And his angel told him, hey, Virgil, you know, you need to connect with Thomas because, you know, he's now working in this fund, investing in HR tech. And at the same time, one of all the bigger European VCs came to me and said, hey, Thomas, we found this company called um, Figures that we're looking at. Do you want to have a look at it? So I think from a deal flow perspective, you can always do better. But we think that our deep speciality and our network really, really helps us find those opportunities. And perhaps maybe one example of that is we have a theory around core HR systems. You know that really boring thing called payroll, mm -hmm. right? I love payroll. I did a PhD in payroll, which is a frightening thought. But payroll is like a thing, right? 3.2 million people in the world get paid, but it's very local. So 
what we realized as a fund is that there's great success. Like you take the example of they don't pay all, but it's a similar Personio in Germany or PayFit in France. It's our belief that there's an opportunity for a PayFit in Mexico or a Personio in Mexico, and that will then filter down into Latin America. There's an opportunity for a one in Southeast Asia. We've invested in a company called Brio HR out of Malaysia, Singapore. And they're the same in, in Sub-Saharan Africa with WorkPay. You know, that's an example where we had a thesis, which is there's an opportunity for modern SaaS payroll products, HR and payroll products, aiming at the SME across the world. And we should go and find those companies. And, and so that's what we did. So with WorkPay in, in Africa, we had an intern and we said to the intern, we want you to research HR tech in Africa. So I had him call up all the VCs, the early stage VCs who were, there's a lot going on in Africa on the VC side and being South African, I've got a bit of a network there. So we started to talk with VCs in South Africa and say, hey, what are you seeing on the HR tech side? And I got connected then with Zach at uh, Launch Africa. But this was mainly through the work of Jason Burke, our intern. He went and did all this research for us. So we seek to find the deal somehow. Obviously, there always could be more, you know. I have a question, Thomas, on that um, thesis, right? And payroll, right? We were, we were smiling and laughing because Andreas knows I fucking hate payroll. <laughs> it's fucking awful. Yeah. <laughs> and every month you have to go through it. And as you yeah. said, it's super local. I love the thesis. Uh-huh. I actually probably agree with the thesis, even though I'm not a specialist, right? But I wonder, when we stack it up against the VC model, right? And the, the model that, that we love, at least Andres and myself, right? We love this idea of underdog and name random city, right? Then becoming a huge tech success story yep. on, at the global scale, right? Within that space, will there ever be a global leader? Like, is, is there a way for that to happen? Because it's so local, right? That I often see, like, I look at it as a super needed technology, but where the VC model isn't really super well suited to help solve because you won't have that one single champion or one huge regional champion. But I'm probably wrong, and you have thought a lot about yeah, it. Yeah, you, you are wrong. Um, <laughs> if you uh, take the example, if we go, like, sorry, I'm going to bore you on payroll now. Payroll was the first business application ever. Did you know that? 1951, Lions Tea Room, the tea shops in the UK, they did the first payroll. And it was the first use of a computer in a business context. You know, in every country, let me give you an example. If you want to see a fantastic company from a performance point of view, go have a look at ADP. Formed in 1949, and they predominantly do U.S. payroll. In, in Germany, you look at, it's not so much payroll, but it's core HR. You look at Personio, right? That's largely, you know, largely a central European place. Sure, they're starting to do stuff in the U.K., and they've got global expansion plans. You wouldn't say that there's not enough market for payroll in North America, and you wouldn't say there's not enough market for payroll and thing. But if you look at population numbers, but the number of people that have actually been paid, and you start to look at Africa and you look at Southeast Asia, the numbers start to add up to be really, really significant. So you can have local champions that then expand regionally. And they, you know, when you start to look at the numbers, these can become uh, really, really big businesses. And then there are elements of HR technology of a global nature. So another portfolio company, which we're super excited about is what we did. And we love all our portfolio companies, but in, in fund one, Jason met these guys from Babson in the US, the university, and they were in Y Combinator. And he wrote a check into these guys before they finished Y Combinator because they were doing an SMS-based learning management system. So what these guys have done is they the two guys and a gal, they'd been on some sort of exchange and they'd gone to Sudan. And they got to Sudan and they realized that everyone in Sudan doesn't have an iPhone, right? So how do they get information? Well, most people have a basic phone with SMS. So they hit on this idea to do training via SMS, like short text-based micro-learning via SMS. 
And they took this idea back to the university, to Babson, and then they incubated it through YC and have built it now into this micro learning platform that delivers learning through SMS. And they have companies like Walmart and all sorts of companies now using this because actually your frontline workers also don't all have the latest phone. They're not on the corporate network. And it often makes sense to consume learning in these bite-sized chunks. Now, currently that business is only in the US, but they did a, a Series A a little while ago. Uh, we went to sort of pre-seed. They did a Series A recently. And we expect them to go you know, to Glogo. It's a it's, it's super example of a constraints-based like, work, sort of frugal innovation. You know, you take this like constraint of, a, of an SMS and then you apply it to solve a business problem. And we think that that kind of got global opportunity with that. Before I was about to take us into kind of understanding the future of work vertical and, and saying, why is it that it's a vertical to its own? Why is it important that you're a future of work expert, right? <laughs> if you get my drift right. So if you say, as an example, there's good reason that there's fintech specialized species because fintech is a very tight-knit industry it's uh you know different layers in the stack play very very close together so you really have a lot that you need to understand for you to be able to be a good investor in fintech you could argue the same thing in much of the deep tech sciences if sure. you don't know science very well you're gonna struggle doing anything in deep tech how is it with 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 uh, future of work why is it that that there's a need for a specialized player there yeah and everyone's gonna say this but I've worked in this space for 25 years. Yeah. Right. So I like to think I kind of know something about it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I absolutely get that. But sometimes it's the tech that's the, the part that's difficult to understand and, and requires you to have been in the industry for a long time. Sometimes it's the business models that are different from everything else. EdTech, as an example, if you don't know the business model of, models of EdTech, that's where you typically <laughs> veer wrong. You try and ground, yeah. And how, what is it with, with future of work that makes that experience from the industry important? There's several points to it. I think and some of this goes back to the history of tech. And it's quite unusual that many of the breakthroughs in uh, software have actually come in HR tech. Let me run you through some examples. The first business application I mentioned, 1951, was a payroll, right? The first use of software in a business context. It's a fascinating story. I could bore you to death on that one. The first use of the internet for commercial purposes, was e-recruiting, right? The career site was really the first commercial breakthrough of, in, in technology, using the internet for a commercial business purpose, the monsters and so on of this world in the, in the early 90s. Then move forward, if you look to the, the first real use of browser technologies in the corporation was employee self-service, right? One of the major initial breakthroughs in software as a service, although everyone talks about CRM, was HR tech. Right. So HR tech is often weirdly at the front end of technology innovation. So, you know, if you look at issues around AI in the workplace, for instance, the workplace question is as important as the AI question. If you approach investing in AI towards the workplace without really understanding the nuances of work, of compliance, of what that means, you're going to run aground. And so, so we think this deep intersection knowledge of where HR and, and work and technology meet is actually really, really valuable. And it's not that we think that we can build a, a massive, massive billion-dollar fund investing in future work, but we think that there is space for a highly specialized fund that will deliver really, really good returns for that. We don't think that we need to build a, a Andreessen for future work, but we think we can build an awesome specialist, was an artisan firm, if you like, for this space, because there's so many of these uh, opportunities 
are driven of this sort of weird intersection between regulation. One of the things I look at a lot is payroll regulation, because when new payroll regulations come, that drives disruption in the market. So that's why we liked uh, Wiki in Mexico. That's why PayFit did so well in France, was it was driven by change. So there's a lot of these nuances that we think are super valuable that your generic B2B VC is not going to be aware of. And, and we think that that's maybe contrarian, but that's what we think is, we think the space for us, I'm not sure whether the space for 500 other future work funds, but we, we think, you know, again, with 3.2 billion people at work, most of them with technologies that don't really fit for purpose, there's space for a fund that wants to fix that. And just before you said something around, you're not wanting to build an A16C, but you, you believe you do believe that there's definitely room for a, uh, a strong fund in this, in this vertical specifically. And I'm yep. right now looking at your deck and there's a slide that intrigued me a bit there because I love thinking about firm development and, and, and there's a slide there that, is, that describes your path to building an enduring franchise. And you then have, and I'm just explaining this to the, uh, to the audience, you then have a graph with the horizontal axis saying time diversification and the vertical axis saying performance. And then you've plotted fund one and fund two and fund three so that they go from fund one being just a fund. And then fund two is kind of where you establish the firm. And then fund three is where you will go to establishing the franchise. And, and, and to everyone's knowledge, you are just about to launch fund two. So, I'm, so we've I'm, launched fund two. We've done first close on fund two. We're deploying on a fund two and we continue to raise fund two at the moment. Yeah. And, and I'd love to hear your, you know, if you could talk us through that, your thinking around going from fund one where you're just a fund, you're not really a, fir a firm, and then going now to building the firm and then onwards to building a franchise. I'd love to hear you, how you think about that. You know, with Jason, and I'm speaking on behalf of Jason here because, you know, he was really the guy who really kicked this off and had the original vision. But, you know, when he started off, it was an experiment. You know, can I do this? Because of proof of concept, you know, is there space for this kind of firm? And so, you know, by setting that up, I mean, the first firm was, the first fund was small. It was, you know, less than 15 million. And that was really an experiment or a proof of concept. And so he proved it out with, you know, with fund one. Fund two is still going to be really small. We're aiming to raise 40 million. So, you know, it's a yeah, relatively small fund, but we think fund three can be a bit bigger than that and will, you know, strengthen the team over time as we go forward through probably into fund two, we'll probably add someone to the team and, you know, fund three, we'll probably add a couple more people to the team. But we think that we can build an enduring specialist firm, you know, in this space that, that is really the, the beacon, the lighthouse or whatever in this space so that when everyone's doing a future work investment, they're saying, oh, is Acadian had a look at this? And, and that's really where we mean by franchise and that we're really the firm that's, that's really, really well known and really so well established, the brand, the brand awareness, the presence, and the, I suppose the respect for expertise. You know? So you're going to do 30 investments or so out of the, uh, the fund you have now. If you were European-focused only, I think if you did 30 investments in future of work over four or five years, you would be very well represented, right? You, you would be in many of the deals and most would have spoken to you and so on. Globally, I'm, that number is different, right? Because, you know, all of a sudden it's a much larger funnel and everything. Don't you think that if you want to be that global winner in future of work, you do need quite some size in the end to, be, to become that player that everyone refers to? You know, I'm not sure. You know, you see particular specialists who you know, invest funds that have been, you know, that aren't massive, that are super well known in a particular space and yeah, will grow over time. But, you know, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but we're finding what's unusual is that we've got 
know, a partner that in Jason that knows the US market really, really well, who's got 20 years of HR tech network in the US. I've got 25 years of network in Europe and, you know, a deep connection to emerging markets. It, it seems to work for us. Sure, we'd like to be bigger, but I think you have to take these things in step. And I think what you have to do is you've got to prove yourself. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. And and I'm just thinking here, ideal world, right? So, of yeah. course, you, you need to grow, you know, don't do not do much more than 2x the fund every time, right? Uh, yeah. But I'm, but I'm curious to hear, what do you think is the, the sweet spot for your franchise then? Is that, uh, you know, running 100 million euro funds or? Well, we'll see. I'm speculating here about fund three was we're still in the middle of raising fund two. So let's, let's <laughs> you know, fund what we've executed. What Jason has executed really, really well on, you know, I fund one 2019 vintage. I'm going to punt a bit, bit now in terms of, you know, some of the performance 2019 vintage. We've got the DPI already of 0.3, TVPI of 2.3, Moik of 2.8. So it's still early days, for, but as a 2019 fund, the signs that we know what we're doing are there. But, you know, you're only as good as your last fund. So we really need to make sure that, you know, we raise what we intend to raise and that fund two starts to perform well. Then we can sit down and say, okay, what do we want? You know, what do we realistically believe that, you know, fund three could be? And sure, I could imagine that being somewhere less than 100, but perhaps not much less than 100, you know. And we feel like we can take this in steps and, also, we'd look to bring other people into the firm, you know, at that point where we're getting a little bit bigger. But we don't really want to get ahead of ourselves yet. The focus right now is on, you know, executing, making sure that the portfolio companies, so we've fully deployed Fund 1, but that the portfolio companies in, in Fund 1 continue to perform well and that we build the foundation for our longer-term success with Fund 2, you know. So, so I'm hesitant to say, okay, Fund 3 is going to be this because... At the moment, we're still very much in the in arts of, of getting fund to where we need it to be. I keep coming back to this thought of, you know, you brought up the topic that you have a strong thesis on SpaceX, you invest globally. And I wonder, and I'd love to hear your comment, right? We have these, these kind of very uh, two distinct approaches to your strategy. Like they're, they're, they're pure strategies, right? So no one really does it, but you have the, the picker strategy or the allocator. So the one where you believe you can pick a champion, the other one where you invest across the space, you know there will be one champion, and then you kind of allocate. And I'm oversimplifying things on purpose. Typically, when I see thesis-driven investing at the later stages, I see the, the former, right? I see the picker approach more, most, right? And then in the earlier stages, it's always these hybrid models. So I'd love to hear you uh, just comment on that, you know, how you think about picking versus allocating and how that lends itself to thesis that you have as a firm that you're hunting or not. We're relatively opportunistic in how we do that. We, you know, most of our investments are at seed. We've done a little bit of A, but the A's have tended to be relatively you know, European A's, which are kind of a bit like US US seed. You know, so it's kind of blurs between A and seed. But we're we really at that point. And the more, you know, this sounds trite, but you know, we sort of have a sense of the space. You know, we have an allocation theory within the space. So we've split, you know, the future work into sort of probably half a dozen different categories within that. So we want to make sure that we're not all doing payroll or we're all doing learning systems or we're all doing recruitment or we're all doing performance, but that we've got a, an allocation across the spectrum of, of what we think is the future of work. But again, also bearing in mind the geographic spread as well. But because of what we know about the space, we, when we speak to founders, we tend to sort of really grill them on product vision. So I come from a product background, so I you know, I don't invest in this, I see product or at least a product idea. And, you know, we spend a lot of time 
getting to know the team, seeing how they understand the space, and also understanding whether that founder wants our help. You know, it, you can overplay this idea that VCs are going to help you post investment, you know, and that, you know, oh, we're experts and everything and we can help you grow your business. And I'm a bit skeptical sometimes about the amount of post-deal support that VCs actually provide. But in our little world, we do have that network. So for instance, one of our venture partner, senior advisor, whatever the term is, is David Clark, who is the former CTO at Workday. So sometimes what we do is, so when we look at investment and they say they're going to interview ABC, well, then we really test them. We really drill down into that founder and into their vision. So we tend to find as well as that backing the person in an early stage is really fundamental. Uh, you can have an idea, you can have a theoretical market, but that early stage thing, the, the, the person, the people is really, really key to success. So, you know, it's, it's, it's more of the picking than it is of the, of the allocated. Yeah. Yeah. What, what about, what about, how do you think about your role in the, the round? So especially I'm, I'm focusing here on, on the first ticket. So when you go in the company for the first time, you, you focus on having more of a leading around, more of a follow around. You get a lot, a lot of examples where if I'm reading between the lines, I, I feel like you're coming in with another investor. You're not necessarily concerned about being the biggest ticket. Is that integral to your model? Yes or no? And, and then kind of the reason why I'm asking this question is because I'm thinking, hmm, future of work, six kind of macro trends or whatever we want to call them bunch of geos. That's, that's a lot of diversification. Then when I think about fund size, I come back to Andreas's question. So I'm, I'm grilling you here. I'm going back to the same question. I'm like, how does that work? Right. And I think it, the answer might be there. So that's why I ask it. We've not led anything, right? We work together with other VCs, right? So that's, yeah, almost all our investments have been together with to establish BC. Sometimes we might bring the opportunity to the established BC. We might look at something and say, hey, this looks, we really like this. You know, and we say to the founder, hey, have you got a lead yet? And they say, well, we're talking to with A, B, and C. I say, oh, well, we know A, you know, uh, we'll have a chat with them. And so sometimes it's a case of where, where we bring the opportunity to the lead investor. Other times it's, you know, where the lead investor comes to us. And probably as we get more confident, we may well find ourselves doing a bit more leading. But, but right now we, we're comfortable with that position. So sometimes we might actually be the first check, but we're not actually the, the lead check if that makes sense. So we might say, yes, we want to do this. And, and then, you know, the lead investor would then, you know, often be the one setting the, the terms of condition of the deal. You know? And maybe an example of that was actually a, a really nice one we wish we did with Stride. So TechWolf is a company based in Belgium that does sophisticated skills management, great product. And I'd actually met Andreas, the founder, three years before, and I'd be giving them strategy advice. And then he told us that, hey, we're coming out for a round, you know, we're talking with these VCs. And would you guys be interested? And so we then got together and, you know, met the guys from Metfred and, and, and Clio and so from Stride. And we went together into TechWolf with, with them. But we were coming in from a position of having known them for several years before as they were starting out. And, yeah, we think that model works well for us. Yeah, You still build conviction doesn't mean you need to have the deepest pockets around the table. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Thomas, we, as you know, <laughs> because you've been listening to to us as you run. We end the episodes of the quick fire round. That's when I'll ask you a couple of quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds each. Are you ready for it? Uh, probably, yeah. <laughs> First question, and uh, I will forbid the answer payroll. <laughs> what areas, sectors, or technologies do you find exciting that most people around don't really find that exciting? You said I can't say payroll. <laughs> uh, regulation. Regulation, yeah. <laughs> we have uh, Form Ventures, probably the only guys that would agree with you as their fund is focused on regulatory <laughs> stuff. <laughs> I love the big guys. Second question. What are your top tips for other VCs across Europe who are now fundraising? 
You need to talk to a lot of people to raise funds. One piece of advice, which I always forget myself and then I kick myself, but when you go into a meeting with somebody, there's two types of meetings. There's a meeting where you're asking for advice and there's a meeting when you're asking for something. Don't mix them. So if you go to somebody and say, hey, you know, I'm interested in you know, learning about family offices, learn about family offices. Don't pitch them. Learn from them. Say, hey, help me figure this out. Then maybe a month later, say, I've been thinking about it. Now I'd like to pitch to you. But don't start a conversation <laughs> asking for advice and then pitch, right? Am I in this conversation to learn or am I in this conversation to pitch? And don't mix the two. That's a good, uh, we need to rephrase the foot in the door concept so that it's it's something that will allow you in at a later time. <laughs> it's still the same intent, but don't don't shove up the door just because you have your foot there now. <laughs> Interesting, yeah. You're absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Third and final question. What is the most counterintuitive learning you've had since you've been in venture? VCs like to collaborate. This was not something I expected. I'd come from a world of enterprise software where people who work at SAP hate the people who work at Oracle and the other way around. It's a vicious, hyper-competitive world. Whereas VCs, while it's competitive on many levels, there is a really helpful community. And you know, when I think back to the, the folks that have helped me, I mentioned Jonathan at Headline, but the people like Fred at Speed Invest and, and Felix at, at, at Power and us, the folks at Local Globe, the time that they've given me, you know, I think especially Emma at Local Globe has been so helpful and so kind and, and generous with, with advice and time that, you know, it, it really was quite a lovely surprise because, you know, if you think about from outside, you sort of think VCs, there's sort of like, like, you know, all money grabbing, da, 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 da. But actually the people have been so friendly and so keen to share and so supportive. And that, that what to me was such a pleasant surprise. I couldn't agree more. And I think that it's also where I would say that. So sometimes people ask me when I say that, well, it's kind of the next generation of European VCs that we're backing. And then, you know, some say, what do you mean by that? Right. And I definitely think that the collaborative part is part of that, because that is this very strong difference, I believe, in, you know, on the right way of doing venture and not and the wrong way. And we see it in the VC landscape where there's some that have more of a private equity type style and, you know, private equity is also very competitive. And you have the same thing on the angel side, right? That, that, that the very best angels absolutely get that, whereas there are definitely also angels that come in with a more competitive lens and, and they tend to also not end up being uh, the best performers. Yeah. Thomas, thanks so much for joining us. It was awesome having you on the podcast instead of only on the run. Well, yes. Um, I won't listen to myself on my run, though. That'll be, like, weird. Nah, you should. You should. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of The European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc.